Reformed Baptist Church. If you're visiting us, we're very glad that you're here. Uh, Merry Christmas Eve, if that's fitting. Tonight, I'll be preaching on Jesus being the light of the world, Christmas-themed invitation of the gospel. Tomorrow, we'll do a Christmas service at nine, but today, we're continuing our journey through the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please open up to chapter 32. It has been, it's been a pretty rocky journey, not for us, we've loved it, but for the Israelites through the book of Exodus so far. They started out as Israelite, as, as, as slaves in Egypt, and now they're free, they're worshipping God, they're meeting with God at the mountain, a unique historical event that only Israel will ever experience, God appearing and speaking to them out of a fire. Uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a bit rocky, few ups and downs, few rebukes here and there, but mostly a, an upward trajectory from slavery and ignorance and dejection into freedom and into knowledge of God and His law and into becoming God's covenant people. And today, we have a tragic interruption. We, 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 we have Moses up on the mountain. He's been there for upward of 35 days He's hearing from God what we've been studying, the amazing design that the tabernacle that they're going to build, the, the tent where God will dwell, which will be their temple to Yahweh, where God's going to meet with them, they're going to worship him, he's going to atone for their sins, an amazing privilege. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, hearing from God and seeing visions into heaven, exactly how he needs to build this with the Israelites, and then, and then we interrupt this divine, uh, this divine uh, broadcast to send you back down the mountain, Moses, for the people are committing an atrocious crime. Not just a sin, but according to the laws that they agreed to as a nation, they are committing a crime. This is the destruction. If we read it rightly, Exodus chapter 32 is the undoing, as far as the Israelites are concerned, the undoing and the destruction of everything God has been doing in Exodus so far. Everything that has been built is now about to be burned down in a flame if it were up to the Israelites and not God's mercy. Let's read Exodus chapter 32. We will read the entire thing, 35 verses. We can do this, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Hear now the words of the one true living God who penned this through Moses by his spirit. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people gathered to themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses fellow, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 2, tremendous start, just a tremendous start. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, of your wives, of your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Just a good rule for church. Get the earrings out of your sons. That's just a, oh, that's my application right here. Verse 3. So all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it to the Lord. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What a dandy, delightful little party they're having at this new worship conference in town. 
Verse 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, now we're back up on the mountain behind the veil of smoke, inside all of the fire and the lightning. Go down, Moses, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Every mum's done this. Anna, isn't my child doing great at school? Your son broke the TV, right? We have such delightful children. Your son slaps the neighbor's kid. Ownership changes when there's blame. God's saying, your people, Moses, your kids, they're worshiping to an idol. <clears throat> That's it. This is a way of God distancing himself. In this sense, they're, they're represented by Moses, not him. He's, he's calling Moses to represent them and to, to be their uh, leader. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse 9, And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may then make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Lord, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Next week will be a sermon on the intercession of Moses and the prayers that he prays to God in this crisis moment of Israel. Today, we're focusing on the Israelite scene. Verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on front and back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Verse 18 of the last chapter tells us these were written by God's finger into the stone. He's walking down, not with five commands on one side and five commands on the other, but ten commandments on both stones to represent a, a contractual piece of paperwork, one for the Israelites, one for God. Verse uh, 18, uh, verse uh, uh, 17, oh, cheers, Aaron. His namesake has a terrible time in this uh, story today. So he's just redeeming the name here. Thank you, Aaron. <clears throat> verse 18. Uh, verse 17. Come on. When jo Joshua heard the noise of the people as they were shouting, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Like, like a general, he's hearing war. But as soon as they uh, came near... And, uh, sorry, verse 18. But he said, Moses said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on water and made the people of Israel drink it. And they blogged about his abusive leadership. 
Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, not all Aaron's are as noble, uh, but this Aaron in this story today said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. They said to me, make us gods that shall go before us as, as with this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. They gave it to me. I threw it in the fire. And out came the calf, Moses. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. An altar call like no other. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said today, you have been ordained to the service of Yahweh, each one of you at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for the people, for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now... If you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then... The Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. May God bless this terrible piece of scripture to our reading and our benefit and the glory of Jesus in our midst this morning. The people today show their true colors. We, we, we read this, this horrendous, this illogical, this foolish, this idiotic scene, and we're just left thinking, how did they get here? How did they get to this point? It's only been maybe 35, 38, 39 days for us, just as an equivalence. That's the 16th of November this year. That's, that's only how far long ago it was. What are you doing? November 16th. That's how far long ago Moses went up to the mountain to hear from God. He told them what he was doing. It's not true that they didn't know what had become of him. He told them what they were doing, and he went up. Now, now the, the death uh, a, a bell is struck in this first line of the entire chapter, when they saw. Do you know what led them into such a terrible, idiotic, rebellious idolatry and sin? The people of God took action based upon their sight. This would be an entirely different chapter, a positive chapter, a tremendous chapter to read on a Christmas Eve. This would be a good chapter if it started out when the people remembered. But it doesn't. If it started out when the people read, because, because God had given them the law. If they had just gone back and read, they would have remembered and, and told themselves, God's faithful, God's good, God's just. He's promised to use Moses. He's promised to give us the land. We just need to be patient. 
but they didn't. They didn't hear the teaching, they didn't read the word, they didn't remember the promises or the past of God, and so they went out based on what they saw. This leads to terrible results for all of God's people, even today. He gave us the book which we don't read. He's made promises which we don't trust. He's he's done tremendous things in the past which we forget. There is a lack of reading, remembering, and believing, so the people go on into sin. We could say also it's just a a fleshly impatience. Just over a month was far too long. God had made them promises. They were itching to get into Canaan. They, they didn't like that God had the audacity to make them wait. So they took matters into their own hands. Or is it that they've, they've got these habits from the past, which they just quite haven't, haven't broken? But for hundreds of years, the Israelites have been in Egypt, and, and we are told later that they are, they, they are wrapped up into the rebellious pagan worship of Egypt. That is that for their time as slaves, the Israelites are worshipping the pagan gods and just waiting uh, one time that, 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 uh, for the time that Abraham's God would finally visit and redeem them. They were not true monotheists. They, they were idolaters. They worshipped gods of gold. And as we've been learning throughout this book, It's one thing to remove the Israelite out of Egypt. It's entirely something else to remove the Egypt out of the Israelite. So they fell back to their old habits. Or was it a problem of weak leadership? Well, obviously, yes. Uh, Weak leadership in Aaron's part. Biblical leadership is always saving people from idiotic ideas. That's like 50% of biblical leadership. And then taking the brunt when people don't like you for saying so. Aaron was spineless. He had the theology. He had the experience. He'd gone to Mount Sinai Seminary and went up onto the mountain and saw God on his graduation. He had everything going for him, but he was spineless. The people came to him and they led, he led them by permission to break God's law and do whatever their hearts intended. Instead of saying, God's not happy with this, he allowed them to do and acquiesce to their demands in a moment. There wasn't even sign of a struggle. He's just weak. As a therapeutic 21st century reader, we sort of come to this and think, now what could have gone better? Let's do a little team building exercise. Let's reassess. Let's rewalk the steps. What went wrong? Because they're good people. Something obviously went wrong. Now, now they built this cut. Now, to explain the calf, they've got this wooden calf, which is then gilded in gold. It's not solid gold. And, and they have a, a calf, which is probably a bull. This was very common uh, even today, but back then in ancient paganism, the, the bull represented two important things for a god to be. He was powerful. These beasts of burden, these oxen, were able to pull and carry weights hundreds of times what humans themselves could move. So agricultural tools, loads to build buildings, all kinds of things. This is a, 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 a creature of power, this ox. But also, it's a picture of fertility. This is why the, the bull was the, was the cult go, uh, animal of Baal, one of the fertility gods. Sometimes they would have these bulls with caricature private parts to sort of show, look at how fertile they are, look at how good at making children they are, look at how they're going to bless our farming and our agriculture. And so they build this calf to symbolize these two things, power and life-giving and its gold. And they're very happy with that. They would have worshipped calf gods in Egypt. They're going to later on in their life as Israelites worship calf gods in Baal and others. 
Here they are worshipping. And we think, well, what went wrong? Uh, something could have been done. If we sort of got a, a big round table of all of the denominational leaders in Christendom now, and we sat us all down, and the papers were put in the middle, the slideshow was put up, Israelites fell into sin of idolatry. What went wrong? Now, now the enlightened humanist guy who's pastoring some uniting church or some woke, uh, a liberal church that doesn't believe in the Bible, things like that, he'll stand up and say, God failed to account for their human needs. Uh, you see, they were visible people. They were visual people. They had visual religion in Egypt. The, we are by nature visual. This ancient God, Yahweh, blessed, blessed be his efforts, but he failed to account for the fact that humans need visual stimuli in the worship of God. Now, that's not true. Because what, just if you look over to the east, Israel, what is burning on the horizon, blazing from heaven to earth? Mount Sinai. A very, very, very visual depiction of God's presence. They, 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 they did not need something more. This was not a, that God had failed to show them visual things, that they were, were acting entirely on faith. That's not the case. They had seen the fire of God. God was actually telling Moses how he could build them something visible so that they could see representations of visual and spiritual realities. He was meeting that need. So it wasn't that. Or maybe the Lutheran stands up and says, oh, they didn't understand the law that he spoke to them. We need the law. But that's not true. The law was so clear. They understood the law. The law was very obvious. It says, shall I read it again? This, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I don't think we have any interpretive difficulties there. Of anything. Okay, that's pretty universal. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay. So the problem here is not that they didn't have the law. It's not that they didn't understand the law. Maybe the Pentecostal pastor stands up and, and, and he says, they didn't have an experience of the miraculous. Oh, if they had been touched by the miraculous, then they would have kept their hearts fast to the Lord. Not true. The Bible accounts that this generation, more than any other generation in all of Israel's history, saw the miraculous works of God as He redeemed them out of Egypt with the ten plagues, through the Red Sea, and every day they drank magic water. They had miracle light and smoke guiding them through the desert. They saw the miracles of God. That's not the excuse. Maybe then the pragmatist, the seeker-sensitive leader, he gets up and he says, look, it's leadership. It's always leadership. Uh, 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 studies show you need at least 75 minutes a month with each staff member to keep their loyalty to your vision and your purpose as a CEO. This was Moses' fault. He went away. That's not true. Moses' presence was merely keeping them from doing what they were always going to end up doing eventually. They are naturally idolatrous people. He was, he was preserving them from that sin, but his absence did not cause them to sin in this way. Their own hearts did. The, the, the Methodist might stand up and say, in the spirit of John Wesley or, or, or maybe a little bit George Whitfield or some of the revivalists and say, they didn't have the fear of God enough. They needed more hellfire brimstone preached and then their hearts would be drawn into spiritual life by the fear of God. And we say, no, they had the fear of God. They had a deeper fear of God than many of us have ever experienced. They witnessed God speaking the Ten Commandments to them, and they ran away and begged that God not speak another word. They had the fear of God, or, or at least they had experienced at a time some fear of God. The seeker-sensitive 
pastor, the non-denominational seeker-sensitive pastor, he stands up, he, she stands up. They say they didn't feel valued through relationship enough. People need relationships to be bonded to a purpose and a team. They didn't feel valued in relation. This is the problem. He said, no, because just days prior, God had met them at the foot of the mountain and given loving promises and entered into a covenant relationship with them, invited their voluntary entering. They chose, he accepted, and they established it in blood. The fault of the Israelites here this morning as we study them at the foot of Mount Sinai is not that they didn't have fear, because fearing God is not enough. Witnessing miracles is not enough to make a faithful people. Experiences of God are not enough. Knowledge of the law is not enough. Being labeled God's people is not enough. Being under the hearing of God's word is not enough to make you faithful. The one thing that they lacked... The biggest problem, the central problem, and the one thing that could have made the difference is regenerate hearts. This they lacked. This was their downfall. It is still true today. The one most needful thing in pure religion for churches, for God's people, for individuals to stand fast and firm in God's covenant is a regenerate Heart. Now, for some of you, that, that is a new term. That, is, that, that sounds like, a, a, like nonsense. Regenerate. It simply means to create again. When the Bible speaks of being regenerated, he's talking about recreated hearts or spirits within individuals that are alive to the Spirit of God, that are out of their natural state and now in a vivacious spiritual experience where they understand God's law. They are bound to God by a spiritual union within them. It's in New Testament language, being born again. To have hearts recreated, to have a new heart given from heaven, it's to be born again from God, which only the Spirit can do. And this generation in Israel, we learn from Psalm 95, Psalm 106, Hebrews, we learn that this generation is by far an unregenerate generation. The generation that saw the most miracles and that was actually physically redeemed up out of Egypt, this generation is by vast majority an unsaved, unregenerate generation that for all that they saw and experienced are right now in hell. What they needed was born again hearts. The rest of the Old Testament history is, tells us that this situation is not even unique to the Exodus generation. Every generation is going to be told by a prophet, you've been circumcised in the flesh, now circumcise your hearts, get new hearts, somehow extract sinful nature Total depravity, hate of God, son of Adam, son of the devil, somehow extract that tumor off of your heart and be pure from your inward self to the Lord. Now that's an impossible command. That's commanding people to do something they cannot do. This is what the New Testament calls a circumcision done, not of the flesh but of the heart, not done by man but done by God, not done by blade but done by the Spirit. This is that every single person who will actually be in heaven one day has experienced at some point in their life, whether or not they remember the moment or not, that you have gone through the process of what is called regeneration. 
The Holy Spirit made them a new spiritual person and then they place their faith in Jesus and they grow in holiness. That's the universal experience of God's people. It was not the experience of this generation of Israelites. So they did precisely what was natural to their heart, what was inevitable. Eventually they were going to do this. They worshipped an idol. The unregenerate heart, and, and this is some of us, I would dare say many of us today, we're in the double digits, we're in the triple digits gathered, but we're at least in the double digits of those who are unsaved. And with Jesus to come back tonight for the second time, you would go to hell. That is that you might even call yourself a Christian, you've seen miracles, you've laid hands on somebody, you've spoken tongues, you went to a conference, you've gone through seminary, you've, you've uh, helped plan to church, or you love the Psalms, you, you love God's law, you read Calvin and John Edwards and lots of dead guys, you're here and you're dressed better than others and more modestly than others, and you can recite the catechisms more than others, you've got a beard better than others, uh, uh, and you stand here and think, I'm just, I'm a Christian but your heart is still a rotting uh, a corpse heart and God would still save you, you need a new heart or you can't be in God's kingdom. The new heart is given alone by the Holy Spirit. Idolatry is the natural inclination and posture of the non-born again heart. So, so all of us from birth, we have this heart and the natural posture of that heart is to idolatry and is hatred and allergic to God. That, that's the natural state of all of our hearts. If you don't like hearing that, that's probably your sinful heart speaking. Thank you for confessing that to ourselves this morning. If you hear that and say, that was me, praise God, I've been redeemed, then you have a born-again heart. If you hear that, and, and, and you, you, you hear that, that, that we're naturally allergic to God, we despise God, and somebody says, no, 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 we can be religious. Uh, these Israelites were not displaying that. They were trying to worship God. No, the unregenerate heart is allergic to the true God as he really is, not in name only. Can I tell you about a vegan friend of mine? I use that term friend lightly. That relationship is on a knife's edge. Nonetheless, I have a vegan friend. Associate. I know a guy. We used to be friends. Then he went vegan. He loves steaks. Sounds a bit contradictory for a vegan, right? He's a vegan who loves steaks. Big uh, inch thick fried on the stove, basted in something, served up with vegetables. He loves steak. He loves getting steaks and chips. But it's tofu steak. Okay, yeah. It, tofu steak. Now, now, he loves steak in name. He's averse in a visceral way to what steak really is. This is false religion. This is the Israelites here today. They say, we love Yahweh. Let's worship him in a little car. Oh, you hate Yahweh. That, that's the diagnosis right there. When you look through the lens of God's law and you look to God, what do you see? A little car? Okay, you're unregenerate. You're going to hell. If, if, if you see God as he's presented in Christ and, and as he shows himself in the law and we say, what a beautiful God. I, I want to be with him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. I, I, I trust my sins to him to be forgiven through Jesus. Then you have a regenerate heart. But the unregenerate heart is allergic to God and hates God, not only in name. These Israelites loved Yahweh, but in reality, they were allergic to him. Now, this is actually, as we've said, natural to every human being. This whole process we've seen the Israelites go through, it's, Romans 1 says it's true of all of us naturally. That is from birth until we get saved. We all go through this process. Suppress the truth, deny God's word, 
worship creation to the ignorance of God himself. Psalm 106 picks up this story today and, repeat, and tells it this way. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. It's a way to insult them. Your God eats grass that I take a leak on in the morning. That's your God, Israel. Do you feel the folly being shunned upon them? They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Romans 1 says of every single human being that though we know God, we do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but become futile in our thinking, foolish hearts become darkened, then claiming to be wise, we become fools, and here's the phrase again, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This tells us two things. That this is not just, well, first of all, this tells us that in Paul's language, in Psalm's language, as we look at Exodus today, this is an unregenerate generation that Moses is dealing with. They aren't born again. They will go to hell. The second thing we know is that because of the, what Paul said in Romans, they are a great example of every single human being, including us. So that what we're studying today is not just the story of what happened. We're studying a story of what always happens. This is a diagnostic for us. It's not just a story about them. It's also an exemplary story about us. And so when we look at them, we should see ourselves naturally, not, not born-again Christians, but naturally unregenerate people being represented by Israel's folly today. Look at verse 19. Uh, sorry, look at verse 15. We go from their spiritual state and an assessment of how they got here to what the effect was. Moses was, of course, in verse 15 and following, he was warned by God. Uh, he was told this was happening, so Moses picks up the tablets of God. He starts walking down. He finds Joshua, who was basically Moses' caddy, who was halfway up the mountain to wait for him. He came back down to Joshua. Then they start walking back to the camp. We don't know how far away the hike was. It's fairly significant. And as they're coming close, Joshua hears yelling and chaos and lack of self-control and screams and, and drums and metal clanging, and he thinks there's war. And Moses interprets it through the lens of what he was just told by God and says, no, it's singing. Chaotic, lack of self-control, idiotic, demonic singing. A worship conference was going on. They were enjoying it. They'd set up a stage. They were having fun. And that was the issue. And they come back down and look at what verse 19 says Moses does. As soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing... Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Note what he, what he does here. This is not a hot-headed preacher's moment of, of sinfulness. He doesn't get angry, throw stuff, starts swearing, punches assistant, and fire 30 people. That's not what Moses does. He's acting here symbolically as their prophet. This is what the prophets do often in the Old Testament. They do some kind of symbolic act for people to look on and go, that's pretty weird. I think that says something about us. Like, like, like one of the prophets baking a cake made out of dung. That was supposed to be an insult to the priesthood and the Israelites of the day. Here's what Moses does. He comes down and what's he carrying? Not just commandments. The testimony 
of the covenant that they have with God. He's holding the laws, the first two of which they've all just broken. Don't worship other gods. They said, make us gods, Aaron. When you worship Yahweh, don't worship through images. Then Aaron says, here's Yahweh in an image. They've just shattered the first two commandments that God ever gave them. And so Moses takes them and symbolically smashes them on the ground. He doesn't carefully chisel out the ones that they broke because James tells us to break one is to break everything. He smashes them so that they can't be put back together to symbolize that the relationship that the Jews had with God is now irredeemable from a human standpoint. There is nothing they can do now. They just sealed their fate because where is Moses standing? He's standing, as it were, at the pulpit of Israel. He's standing at the foot of the mountain, which is where they had all met with God just a couple of months prior, where they had promised themselves into covenant with God. Then they shed blood, had it sprinkled on them, and in doing so, they were saying, this is a blood covenant. If I break it, my blood has to be shed. In other words, we die. It's a, it's, a, it's a capital crime to break this commandment. We promise we agree with that. We agree that it's a good idea. Let's go, Moses. This covenant sounds great. He disappears for a month. Then they go and break it. So Moses' prophet is standing next to the blood-stained altar that they promised at. He's holding the laws that they promised to do, which threatened death if they failed. He's standing in front of the people where they are looking at him, and he prophetically takes them and smashes them on the ground as if to say, this relationship is done. It's like a husband going to the altar that he was married at and tearing up his marriage certificate after finding his wife in bed with another man and burns that piece of paper. That's how symbolic this is. And then he goes even further. Symbolically, he gets the calf, he throws it onto its own altar, so that it burns to a crisp. Now you've got wooden ash and, and, and gold slag mixed among the ashes. He takes it, he gets some of the workers to grind it down to a powder. And then later on in Deuteronomy, the story is told again. And it's not that he puts it into cups and makes everybody take a communion meal of judgment. It's that he pours it into their water supply. Into the, into the water that they were drinking from day by day. First of all, to desecrate and destroy the idol totally... Because now the God they were worshipping is being turned into urine and feces through them. That, that's the, one of the reasons God did this. Secondly, he did it so as to be a continual judgment to the people. Drink your own idols. You want this idol to help you? Consume it. This was the anger of Moses. But then there's a third thing that he does. As a prophetic act, he also calls out Aaron. Aaron, hands up, brother. Come down here. We'd love to, we'd just love to do a little pastoral interview in front of the million-strong throng of idolaters right here. And he calls Aaron up and he rebukes him in front of everybody as a prophetic act of rebuking what he and they all did. And doing so, he he uh, uh, in front of all of the people, he says to him, What have you done? This is verse 21 and following. Now Aaron shows himself to be a human weasel at this point. There's no better word for him. He's an absolute weasel. He stands up and he, 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 first of all, he did exactly what they asked. He just caved to their requirements. Then he stands up to Moses and downplays it and goes, I don't know what you're so upset about, brother. 
this is not a big deal, okay? You're being very judgmental here. Just calm down. And then he, he blames the people anyway. Now, if there is any blame, it's, it's on this people over here, these wicked, evil, fork-tongued people, right? Uh, this is, he's just copying his first father, Adam, who did the same thing. Oh, God, it wasn't me. It was, it was this broad that you gave me, by the way. I didn't, I didn't do any of this. He's just shifting blame. And then he lies. He's, he's just a, the perfect example of every cowardly husband, father, or pastor that's ever existed. Uh, it's not that bad. It wasn't my fault. And then they just completely misconstrue the story anyway. Do you remember what he said? He says, I, you know, he, he almost sound, makes it sound like he was actually the good guy. They wanted an idol, Moses. So I took all their gold and I threw it to the fire. And there was, that was their punishment. There it was. They lost their gold. And then a calf came out. Moses, I've been wondering the same thing as you. What's with the calf? I, uh, what calf? Anyway, oh, oh, that one. He's just downplaying everything, completely lied about how it happened in order to try and get away from it. In 1954, in the, the, towards the end of the first Indochina war between the French and what would one day mostly be Vietnam, it was the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And there was a French colonel who was losing terribly to the less equipped, less trained uh, locals of the Indochina area. And as he was giving an account for why his well-trained, well-ammunitioned French army lost to these locals, he, he said to his advisors that every day there was a magical mist that came down on the Viet, Viet, Viet Mings and the soldiers, they, were just, they got better than us. Is a heavenly mist, magic, not my fault. Still a better excuse than Aaron's. In 1834, in Sweden, there was a, a murder took place in a large town. And as the, as the police were interviewing what they thought was probably a prime suspect, he told them that he had seen the murder happen and it was that donkey. The police arrested the donkey as an accomplice to murder put it under trial, it had its own defense attorney, it was tried with a jury, and eventually let off while the murderer just shrinked away. Still a better cover story than Aaron. The cow just popped on out of the flame. This coward's lie is not even believable. Moses' symbolism here is to rebuke him. He, he burns hot. Moses is angry, but his wrath, doesn't even compare to God's wrath. Because then Moses marches down to the gates of the camp, sort of the, the outlier, the, 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 the outer border of the camp. And he just, again, an altar call. He says, anybody who is for Yahweh, anybody, any of the sinners, anybody who wanted to repent, that's what he was calling them to do. Anybody who is for Yahweh, come to me. And then a twelfth of the people stand up. Right? He's standing, I see that hand. Brother, come down the front. I see that hand. Come here. And all the Levites start getting up and getting, getting encouraged. And they run down the front and then nobody else. So Aaron and Moses, they're of the tribe of Levi. Aaron now here gets a moment to redeem himself. He repented and said, I led them in sin. Now I come. His whole shared tribe, they're also there. The rest of the Israelites are sitting still. They're standing. They didn't come when he said, who wants to be on Yahweh's side? And he was God's judgment. He told the Levites, now the language is kind of like an assessor-surveyor language. 
It's not chaos and massacre as if they go through and they cut down everybody they can find like Vikings. It's that they're being told, go to and fro, a sort of back and forth language. Go and question people. Ask them all, Yahweh or calf? Anybody who sits still and idle and stubborn in their idolatry, kill them. You know what there wasn't? There wasn't a third category of the tolerant. There wasn't a third category for people who said, both God and calf, dead. There wasn't a category for people who said, but the calf is Yahweh, dead. Yahweh as he is revealed in scripture or death. And that is always the only two options. It is Yahweh as he is revealed in scripture, the one true triune holy being revealed in his son Jesus Christ who died for sinners, rose again, rules in glory until the end of time. It is that Yahweh or it is abject idolatry. There is no in between. Tolerance is not a virtue here today in Israel. 3,000 men, brothers, sons, fathers, fathers-in-laws, childhood friends, cut down and their blood stains the sand at the foot of Mount Sinai. And don't you just see that whole scene screaming mercy? Isn't that just a merciful scene that God sent the Levites through and they just butchered 3,000 people? If you hear that scene and you think, that's harsh, that's your idolatrous, unregenerate heart, relating to the Israelites more than with God. Because what should have happened to the million-strong group of people, million people in Israel, who all agreed with God, if we worship another God, we deserve to die, and then they worshipped another God, and all of them deserve to die, and only 3,000 of them, half a percent of the male population, is killed. That just screams mercy. We're sinners. We're going to relate with the Israelites and say, well, how is this fair and how harsh this is? But the real question, if you want to talk about justice and, 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 and you know, uh, uh, the, the argument of, of, of the problem of evil in the world, here's the problem of evil with the existence of God. If he is so good, why are any of us still alive? That's the question you need to answer. If you're an atheist, a skeptic, an unbeliever today, that the question of God's fairness is not how dare he let us get cancer and how dare he let children die and how dare he let people go to hell. The question is how dare he let any one of us take another breath in his universe while we pull the bird to him every day of our life. That's the question. And this is a picture of that, that on Israel's most sinful day to date, only 3,000 of them have to die. The rest of them get to live and be reminded of this moment as a lesson. But Moses knows that they need an atonement. Look at what he says in uh, verse 30. The next day. So they all go to bed, mourn their dead. And the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He doesn't downplay their sin. He doesn't try and get pragmatic. He doesn't excuse them. He, he just goes back to what he knows. This was horrible sin. You all deserve to die, so you need atonement. 
and I need to make atonement somehow. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm trying to think through, put my mind into Moses' experience, remember? He's not a Christian, like we would think of it. He's never, never celebrated Easter, never celebrated Christmas, doesn't know what a cross is. He's 1,500 years before all that. But he's read the law. He saw the tabernacle. He's been told all about the sacrifices and the bronze altar and all of the blood that needs to be shed. And I think in Moses' mind, he knows this, that if a sinner is to be atoned for, a non-guilty soul has to die in that person's place. That's what he knows. So, so here he is crossing fingers to the Israelites. Maybe I can make atonement. And then he starts his arduous journey up the mountain. And with every step, he's thinking like Isaac going up the hill with Abraham. Where's the sacrifice? Who's, who's going to make the sacrifice? What's going to be done? What can be offered as a sacrifice? There's no one in all of Israel who can be counted as guiltless from this crime. All of them except me committed it. Oh, there's his answer. He needs to sacrifice something that didn't join in the crime. He is the only one in all of Israel that fits that category. And so he says, as he comes into the presence of God, verse 31... Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for for themselves gods of gold. But now, please, that if is, is like a plea. May you forgive their sin. If you just forgive their sin. And if not, if it can't be done without sacrifice, then blot me out of the book that you have written. That's ancient language for scratch me off the census. Take me out of the land of the living. I will die in their place. Now, here's the problem. Moses couldn't represent in an atonement, even if he was a perfect man, he couldn't represent a nation. He could represent one other person. The law, Exodus 21, has already told us, one life for one life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, life for life. Moses, pick one of the Israelites. And your life could be given for them, theoretically. But not a whole nation. No human being has enough value in their blood to die for many. Even two. But here's the other problem. Where does Moses get off thinking that he's a perfect substitute? That he didn't live for for, for 40 years in Egypt, worshipping their gods and partaking in their priesthood and sinning against the holy God of the universe? He can't really look at the Israelites and think, I am objectively better than them or pure from their sin. He's just like them. So this is a very hopeful, very faith-filled, but quite ignorant plea that he's making to God. Oh, oh, love knows, the world knows no greater love than this that would lay one's life down for his friends. He's loving, he's genuine, he's sincere, but he's fooled. He can't do it. There's no atonement that can cover this many people for so severe a crime. So God grants to him in in mercy, and we'll look at this in more detail next week, but God grants to him in mercy, get the people up, let's go to the promised land, I will keep my promise, and one day I will pour out my judgment on them. The next day, they get a plague, we don't know if anyone dies, and if they do, how many people died? But what we know is that history shows out in the the writings of the Old Testament that that this punishment and wrath for an idolatrous generation is 
poured out on, on a later idolatrous generation who would be destroyed, their temple burned, their gold stolen, their sons massacred, and they would be carried off to the far reaches of the east for their idolatry. This happens a thousand years later, just about, in the stories of, of the kings and the chronicles. But now, God decides to at least hint at his ever-loving mercy. So as 21st century, mostly Christians, some non-Christians here gathered today, what lessons are there for us today? And, and I could say that God takes, and I will say this, God takes idolatry so seriously, so seriously, that the church should never join arms in what is called syncretism, where we hold God as the greatest and highest and most loving God, but we, we tip the hat to Islam, and we don't mind a bit of Buddha in our midst, and we're okay if you're Hindu, as long as you'll add Jesus to your play on of God's, no such thing. God, as revealed in Scripture, as the one true living God, revealed in three persons, shown to us in Jesus, or idolatry. No Christian church can ever survive. God told us this in the commandments. He visits his wrath upon idolatrous generations to the third and fourth. That's what happens. Churches die as they mingle Christian theology with paganism. I could tell you, 1 John 5, verse 21, Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. It's so easy to love things more than God, to give things more time than God, to give things more affection and more effort and more, 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 more thought, energy than you give to God. Where are you at? If God was to weigh up your, your thoughts and deeds this last month, uh, are you more devoted to Yahweh, God, Christ, His purpose in the world through the church than you are to your own career, money-making, self-esteem, reputation, trinkets, job, boat? Keep yourself from idols. Now, while that's a command, and I bind you to it in the authority of God, I also love to tell you that in Ezekiel 36, God solves this whole problem. The whole problem is that we've seen today external religion makes no effect on people whose hearts are still evil. And Ezekiel 36 prophesies a day when God would come in Jesus and would give first to the house of Israel and then all nations beyond them the gift of a new heart. This is the new covenant. Not better laws, not more laws, not stricter laws. Laws on your heart, written by the Holy Spirit, sealed upon your nature because you've been born again. Now, now think, this is so important to realize. Old Testament, Old Covenant, majority unregenerate. New Covenant, Christian church, supposed to be, theoretically and ideally, 100% regenerate. Right? We can't say, oh, he was a good king in the Old Testament, though he was unregenerate. And he's a good pastor, even though he's unregenerate. No. Any known unregenerate person is not welcome into the membership of the church and cannot be faithful to God. So, so this is the, the grand thing. In the New Covenant, we have a people, a church, a family, those who worship God who have born-again hearts. So that while I will command you, keep yourself from idols, Ezekiel 36 says, the blessing of the new covenant is that God will keep you from idols. He'll give you a new heart, He'll bind you to His law, and He will make sure that you will never wander off into worship of idols. Listen to Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. The gospel is not a command, be perfect. 
The gospel is a promise. God makes you perfect in Jesus. The gospel is not a command. You must be born again. It is a promise. God makes you born again by his spirit and keeps you in the family for good. It goes on to say, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give to you a beating heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what God does to us primarily. We become law-abiding citizens of heaven. And then if we can just apply this as we close out, what Moses hoped to do but failed to do because of his sin, Jesus came, born first as a baby, grew to a man, perfect, sinless, never committed idolatry, never broke God's law. And he goes before God, like Moses tried to do, as the perfect substitute and says, Father, they know not what they're doing. It is a great sin, but take me in their stead. I will drink the cup of their wrath. If you will not forgive them freely, which he asked God to do, so he didn't have to die on the cross. If you cannot forgive them freely, then forgive them at the cost of my own blood. God did that, and then he rose Jesus back from the grave. Now, this is the great promise. There is never a day when Jesus will ever march down from heaven, sick and tired of his church, and take up the gospel and break it on the ground. He'll never take the cross, come back down to heaven, and crumble it into dust and make us drink it. There's no judgment for those who come to God in Christ. There is no condemnation, death, or hell for those who come to God in Christ Jesus. No matter how sinful you are, if today you merely believe in Jesus and say, I want him to be the savior from hell for me. I want to be born again out of my sin and into an eternal life. If you desire that, you simply call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart right now. You say, Lord God, receive me. Forgive me because of Jesus. Make me born again because of Jesus. Give me eternal life because of Jesus. Never look on my sin and make me pay for it because of Jesus. That's the gospel call. Let's pray. Father God, we ask today that which Moses only dreamt of and never could see in the light of day, we pray because of Christmas, because of Easter, because of Jesus being born perfect, living a, a, a perfect human life, under the law and for us. And because he went to the cross and died under the law and for us in our place, because he died as the perfect atoning sacrifice, please, Lord God, receive to yourself today many sinners. Please receive those who still are under guilt. Allow them to come to you and be forgiven. Bring them. Give them that new heart. Put your spirit within them and give them a new soul, Lord God. We also pray that we as a people would be a regenerate, born-again church, zealous for God's law, loving your commandments because you make us to do so by your power. I ask, Lord God, that you would keep us from idols, <coughs> from all that the world offers, that you would set our hearts and our affections on you and you alone so that we can serve you and fulfill the purpose you've left us on earth to do. Father God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Jesus. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. 
If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.